0: Book Three, Chapter One, Sections Eleven to Fourteen of Mister Britling Sees It Through by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Eleven. Letty walked back slowly through the fields of stubble to her cottage. She had been talking to Mister Britling for an hour and her mind was full of the thought of this changed and simplified man, who talked of God as he might have done of a bird he had seen, or of a tree he had sheltered under. And all mixed up with this thought of Mr. Britling was the strange idea of God, who was also a limited person, who could come as close as Teddy, whispering love in the darkness. She had a ridiculous feeling that God really struggled like Mr. Britling and that, with only some indefinable inferiority of outlook, Mr. Britling loved like God. She loved him for his maps and his dreams, and the bareness of his talk to her. It was strange how the straining thought of the dead Teddy had passed now out of her mind. She was possessed by a sense of ending and beginning, as though a page had turned over in her life, and everything was new. She had never given religion any thought but contemptuous thought for some years, since, indeed, her growing intelligence had dismissed it as a scheme of inexcusable restraints and empty pretenses, a thing of discords where there were no discords except of its making. She had been a happy atheist. She had played in the sunshine, a natural creature with the completest confidence in the essential goodness of the world in which she found herself. SHE HAD REFUSED ALL THOUGHT OF PAINFUL AND DISAGREEABLE THINGS. UNTIL THE BLOODY PAW OF WAR HAD WIPED OUT ALL HER ASSURANCE. TEDDY THE PLAYMATE WAS OVER. THE LOVE GAME WAS ENDED FOREVER. THE FRESH HAPPY ACCEPTANCE OF LIFE AS LIFE. AND IN THE PLACE OF TEDDY WAS THE SORROW OF LIFE, THE PITY OF LIFE. AND THIS COMING OF GOD OUT OF UTTER REMOTENESS into a conceivable relation to her own existence. She had left Mr. Brittling to his atlas. He lay prone under the hedge, with it spread before him. His occupation would have seemed to her, only a little while ago, the absurdest imaginable. He was drawing boundaries on his maps, very carefully in red ink with a fountain pen. But now she understood. She knew that those red-ink lines of Mr. Britling's might in the end prove wiser and stronger than the bargains of the diplomats. In the last hour he had come very near to her. She found herself full of an unwanted affection for him. She had never troubled her head about her relations with anyone except Teddy before. Now suddenly she seemed to be opening out to all the world for kindness. This new idea of a friendly God, who had a struggle of his own, who could be thought of as kindred to Mr. Britling, as kindred to Teddy, had gripped her imagination. He was behind the autumnal sunshine. He was in the little bird that had seemed so confident and friendly. Whatever was kind, whatever was tender, there was God and a thousand old phrases she had read and heard and given little heed to that had lain like dry bones in her memory suddenly were clothed in flesh and became alive this god if this was god then indeed it was not nonsense to say that god was love that he was a friend and companion with him it might be possible to face a world in which teddy and she would never walk side by side again nor plan any more happiness for ever, after all, she had been very happy. she had had wonderful happiness, she had had far more happiness, far more love in her short years or so than most people had in their whole lives. and so, in the reaction of her emotions, Letty, who had gone out with her head full of murder and revenge, came back through the sunset thinking of pity, of the thousand kindnesses and tendernesses of Teddy, that were, after all, perhaps only an intimation, of the limitless kindnesses and tendernesses of God. What right had she to a white and bitter grief, self-centered and vindictive, while old Britling could still plan an age of mercy in the earth, and a red-gold sunlight that was warm as a smile from Teddy lay on all the world? she must go into the cottage and kiss Sissy, and put away that parcel out of sight, until she could find some poor soldier to whom she could send it. She had been pitiless towards Sissy in her grief. She had, in the egotism of her sorrow, treated Sissy as she might have treated a chair or a table, with no thought that Sissy might be weary, might dream of happiness still to come. Sissy had still to play the lover, and her man was already in cocky. There would be no such year as Letty had had in the days before the war darkened the world. Before Sissy's marrying the peace must come, and the peace was still far away. And Durick, too, would have to take his chances. Letty came through the little wood, and over the stile that brought her into sight of the cottage. The windows of the cottage as she saw it under the bough of the big walnut-tree were afire from the sun. The crimson rambler over the porch that she and Teddy had planted was still bearing roses. The door was open, and people were moving in the porch. Someone was coming out of the cottage, a stranger in an unfamiliar costume, and behind him was a man in khaki. But that was Mr. Durick! and behind him again was Sissy. But the stranger! He came out of the frame of the porch towards the garden gate. Who, who was the stranger? It was a man in queer-looking foreign clothes, baggy trousers of some soft-looking blue stuff and a blouse, and he had a white bandaged left arm. He had a hat stuck at the back of his head, and a beard, he was entirely a stranger, a foreigner. Was she going insane? Of course he was a stranger. And then he moved a step, he made a queer sideways pace, a caper on the path, and instantly he ceased to be strange and foreign. He became amazingly incredibly familiar by virtue of that step. No! Her breath stopped all Letty's being seemed to stop. And the stranger, who was also incredibly familiar, after he had stared at her motionless form for a moment, waved his hat with a gesture, a gesture that crowned and scaled the effect of familiarity. She gave no sign in reply. No, that familiarity was just a mad freakishness in things. This strange man came from Belgium, perhaps, to tell something about Teddy. And then she surprised herself by making a groaning noise, an absurd, silly noise, just like the noise when one imitates a cow to a child. She said, Moo! And she began to run forward, with legs that seemed misfits, waving her hands about. And as she ran she saw more and more certainly that this wounded man in strange clothing was Teddy. She ran faster and still faster, stumbling and nearly falling. If she did not get to him speedily, the world would burst. To hold him, to hold close to him. Letty, Letty, just one arm. She was clinging to him, and he was holding her. It was all right. She had always known it was all right. Hold close to him, except just for a little while. But that had been foolishness. Hadn't she always known he was alive? And here he was, alive, hold close to him. Only it was so good to be sure, after all her torment, to hold him, to hang about him, to feel the solid man, kissing her, weeping too, weeping together with her. Teddy, my love! Twelve Letty was in the cottage, struggling to hear and understand things, too complicated for her emotion-crowded mind. There was something that Mr. Durrick was trying to explain, about a delayed telegram that had come soon after she had gone out. There was much, indeed, that Mr. Durek was trying to explain. What did any explanation really matter, when you had Teddy, with nothing but a strange beard and a bandaged arm, between him and yourself. She had an absurd persuasion at first that those two strangenesses would also presently be set aside, so that Teddy would become just exactly what Teddy had always been. Teddy had been shot through the upper arm. My hand has gone, dear little Letty. It's my left hand, luckily. I shall have to wear a hook like some old pirate. There was something about his being taken prisoner. That other officer, that was Mr. Durek's officer, had been lying there for days. Teddy had been shot through the upper arm, and stunned by a falling beam. When he came to, he was disarmed, with a German standing over him. Then afterwards he had escaped. In quite a little time he had escaped he had been in a railway station somewhere in Belgium, locked in a waiting-room with three or four French prisoners, and the junction had been bombed by French and British aeroplanes. Their guard and two of the prisoners had been killed. In the confusion the others had got away into the town. There were trucks of hay on fire, and a store of petrol was in danger. After that one was bound to escape, one would have been shot if one had been found wandering about. The bomb had driven some splinters of glass and corrugated iron into Teddy's wrist. It seemed a small place at first. It didn't trouble him for weeks. But then some dirt got into it. In the narrow cobbled street beyond the station, he had happened upon a woman who knew no English, but who took him to a priest, and the priest had hidden him. Letty did not piece together the whole story at first. She did not want the story very much. She wanted to know about this hand and arm. There would be queer things in the story when it came to be told. There was an old peasant who had made Teddy work in his fields in spite of his smashed and aching arm, and who had pointed to a passing German when Teddy demurred. There were the people called They, who had at that time organized the escape of stragglers into Holland. There was the night watch, those long nights in succession, before the dash for liberty. But Letty's concern was all with the hand. Inside the sling there was something that hurt the imagination, something bandaged, a stump. She could not think of it. She could not get away from the thought of it. But why did you lose your hand? It was only a little place at first, and then it got painful. But I didn't go into a hospital, because I was afraid they would intern me, and so I wouldn't be able to come home. And I was dying to come home. I was homesick. No one was ever so homesick. I've thought about this place and the garden. And how one looked out of the window at the passers by a thousand times. I seemed always to be seeing them old Dimple with his benevolent smile, and Mrs. Wolker at the end cottage, and how she used to fetch her beer and wink when she caught us looking at her, and little Charlie Slobberface sniffing on his way to the pigs, and all the rest of them. And you, Letty, particularly you and how we used to lean on the window-sill with our shoulders touching, and your cheek just in front of my eyes, and nothing aching at all in one. How I thought of that and longed for that! And so, you see, I didn't go to the hospital. I kept hoping to get to England first, and I left it too long. "'Life's come back to me with you,' said Letty. Until just today, I've believed you'd come back. And today, I doubted. I thought it was all over, all the real life, love, and the dear fun of things, and that there was nothing before me, nothing before me but just holding out, and keeping your memory. Poor arm, poor arm, and being kind to people, and pretending you were alive somewhere. I'll not care about the arm. In a little while, I'm glad you've gone, but I'm gladder you're back, and can never go again. And I will be your right hand, dear, and your left hand, and all your hands. Both my hands, for your dear lost left one. And you shall have three hands instead of two. Thirteen Letty stood by the window, as close as she could to Teddy, in a world that seemed wholly made up of unexpected things. She could not heed the others. It was only when Teddy spoke to the others, or when they spoke to Teddy, that they existed for her. For instance, Teddy was presently talking to Mr. Durrock. They had spoken about the Canadians who had come up and relieved the Essex men after the fight in which Teddy had been captured. And then it was manifest that Mr. Durrick was talking of his regiment. I'm not the only American who has gone Canadian, for the duration of the war. He had got to his explanation at last. I've told a lie, he said triumphantly. I've shifted my birthplace six hundred miles. Mind you, I don't admit a thing that Sissy has ever said about America, not one thing. You don't understand the sort of proposition America is up against. America is the new world, where there are no races and nations any more. She is the melting pot, from which we will cast the better state. I've believed that always. In spite of a thousand little things, I believe it now. I go back on nothing. I'm not fighting as an American, either. I'm fighting simply as myself. I'm not going fighting for England, mind you. Don't you fancy that? I don't know I'm so particularly in love with a lot of English ways as to do that. I don't see how anyone can be very much in love with your empire, with its dead-alive court, its artful politicians, its lords and ladies and snobs, its way with the Irish, and its way with India, and everybody shifting responsibility and telling lies about your common people. I'm not going fighting for England. I'm going fighting for Sissy and justice, and Belgium, and all that, but more particularly for Sissy. And anyhow, I can't look Pa Brittling in the face any more. And I want to see those trenches, close. I reckon they're a thing it will be interesting to talk about some day. So I'm going, said Mr. Durek. But chiefly, it's Sissy. See? Sissy had come, and stood by the side of him. She looked from poor broken Teddy to him, and back again. "'Up to now,' she said. "'I've wanted you to go.' Tears came into her eyes. "'I suppose I must let you go,' she said. "'Oh, I'd hate you not to go.' 14. "'Good God! How old the Master looks!' cried Teddy suddenly. He was standing at the window, and as Mr. Durrock came forward inquiringly, he pointed to the figure of Mr. Brittling, passing along the road towards the dower-house. "'He does look old. I hadn't noticed,' said Mr. Durrick. "'Why, he's gone grey, cried Teddy, peering. "'He wasn't grey when I left.' They watched the knickerbockered figure of Mr. Britling receding up the hill, atlas and papers in his hands behind his back. "'I must go out to him,' said Teddy, disengaging himself from Letty. "'No,' she said, arresting him with her hand. "'But he will be glad.' She stood in her husband's way she had a vision of mr britling suddenly called out of his dreams of god ruling the united states of the world to rejoice at teddy's restoration no she said it will only make him think again of Hugh, and how he died don't go out teddy not now what does he care for you let him rest from such things leave him to dream over his atlas he isn't so desolate, if you knew. I will tell you, Teddy, when I can. But just now, no, he will think of Hugh again. Let him go. He has God and his Atlas there. They're more than you think. End of Book Three, Chapter One.